Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tries the hearts. So, Father, I pray that you would come now. I invite you, I plead with you to come with whatever fiery form you choose to refine our hearts and to burn the dross of sin, even the sin we're not aware of, out of our hearts. I ask, and I say it with some trembling, that you would do whatever you must do to make us clean, to make us walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to make us become more conformed to to who we are in Christ. And help me now to be faithful to this word of Scripture and the scope of the Bible in your revelation to us so that this sermon would be an instrument of refining and purifying hope-giving, joy-producing, sin-defeating, mission-mobilizing, relationship-reconciling, family-sustaining, loneliness-overcoming word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the aims of this series, seven parts, we're in number three of seven, 
One of the aims of this series is to impress upon our minds. It is push by the word of God into our minds more firmly the truth that Jesus Christ is the most important person in the world, in the universe. Whoever lived, lives now, ever will live with two exceptions. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is not superior or more important than them. He is equal with them in worth and truth and justice and grace and mercy and wisdom. In every divine perfection, the three persons of the Trinity are equal and one. But aside from that great equality, Jesus is superior to every other person that has ever lived or ever will live, whether kings or commanders or scientists or artists or philosophers or athletes or movie stars or anybody else now until forever. He is supreme. So that's one of the points of this series to so display the glories of Christ against the backdrop of the spectacular sins of the universe that he would shine the more brightly. We would love him the more, admire him the more, follow him the more earnestly, delight in him more, treasure him more, obey him more, make him more known. Aim number two in this series is to show from the Bible that everything exists including evil, and is ordained by an infinitely wise and holy God to make the glory of Christ shine more brightly. Everything exists, including evil, by God's design in order to serve the glorification of Jesus Christ. Some of us at Bethlehem read the Bible through in a year on the discipleship journal reading plan. This week, those of us who were doing that read Proverbs 16, 4, which says this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has done that in his own mysterious way, such that the wicked are really guilty and really accountable and really worthy of judgment. And God is totally without sin. That's the way he does it. In great inscrutability. Last week, no, the week before last, we said from Colossians 1.16, all things were made through Christ and for Christ, for Christ's glory and honor. All things, and then we saw it was followed by four things. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were made for him. And they show up again in chapter 2 at the cross where they are nullified because they're wicked. All things are made 
through him and for the glory of Christ. So one of the points of this series is to impress upon us the truth that Christ's glory shines off of and in contrast to all things, including sin, and it happens by God's design. Thirdly, this series is designed to solidify the conviction in our minds that Christianity is not a series of of thoughts, ideas, feelings, practices which aim to enhance your psychological well-being. Not by God, not by man. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity begins with the great conviction that quite apart from my ideas and my feelings and my thoughts and my desires, there is objective reality defined by God. God absolutely is. I grew up in the 60s. That's where I became an adult. And shining brightly for us young, stupid existentialists was the pole star of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was writing books with the title like and giving lecture series at Wheaton College with the title like The God Who Is There. That was simple English for anti-existentialism. What he meant by that, and what I mean by this point is, outside of me, quite apart from anything I want to be true, is truth that i got to deal with. Existentialists thought we put existence before essence and we will our existence into being and we create reality and we will things to be and what we are, we make ourselves to be wrong. God is, we deal with it or not. He defines reality, we don't. He decides what you're like, you don't decide what he's like. And my aim in putting up spectacular sins and their global purpose in the glory of Christ, which is the name of the series, is to confront us with a worldview that is outside ourselves, smacks us in the face and says, deal with it. And confronts us with the question, are we doing Christianity because we're just spinning it out of our brains, making it what we want, and then being happy with it? Or are we meeting Christianity, rising to us out of this book, smacking us sometimes right in the face, and then getting underneath us and holding us up? One of the ways to inform ourselves and strengthen our conviction that this is so. Namely, that God governs all things, including the rise and extent of evil, is to look at the verses in the Bible that describe the death of the Son of God for sin before the world was created. 
I have five written down here. Let me read you one of them. This is Revelation 13, 8. John says, referring to those who worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Staggering, that verse. Not not that there's writing and not writing, but that there's a book. Before the foundation of the world with a name. And the name of the book before Adam was created is the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the name of the book. Before creation. That's massive. Jesus was not an afterthought to the fall. God planned to magnify the mercy and grace and patience and kindness and goodness and wrath and justice of His Son before Adam ever existed. Through the cross, which was because of sin, which means that the plan included sin. Without God being the least sinful and with all sinners being totally guilty in God's inscrutable ways. Oh, how deep is the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways. How inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Do not presume to figure God out totally. Just read this book. And believe it all. One of the reasons I stress this third reason for the series is that wimpy worldviews produce wimpy Christians. And wimpy Christians will not survive the days that are coming. It would be piece of cake to pastor a church and produce wimpy Christians. Just constantly coddle you. Just do a little survey every week about what you want to hear and then tell you what you want. Producing wimpy Christians is easy. You can make money at it. You can get a big church. That's not what I'm called to do. I want to produce Christians who stand in the last day. I don't know if you see the world the way I see it these days. Flooding. There will be floods. Minnesota to North Korea. Forest fires from California to Greece. 
pestilence. You know what that old word means? It means East Asian bird flu. That's what it means. It means West Nile virus. That's what it means from Canada to Germany. Terrorism from New York to Hyderabad yesterday. This is a strange world we live in. This is a dangerous place and becoming increasingly tense. Wimpy Christians won't last. And wimpy worldviews produce wimpy Christians. And so in this series, just seven weeks, I want to lift up a reality, a biblical reality that just hits us in the face, spectacular sins and their global purpose in the glory of Christ. I want Christ to be massive for you, not just massive in the sweet, easy times, not just massive because he's warm and cuddly, but massive because he triumphs over all evil. And nothing takes him off guard. So let's focus for a few minutes on Romans 5 verses 12 to 21. There are five explicit references to Christ in these verses. Seven years ago, in the summer of the year 2000, I preached five messages on this paragraph. On our way through Romans, because eight years to get through Romans, you can see why five sermons on one paragraph. They're all online. DesiringGod.org can read them, which means I feel a freedom here to tackle this paragraph from a peculiar angle. One angle, not every angle. Leave out a lot of things. And here's the angle. I want to look at this text to see how the fall of Adam. And all the horror that came from it. I was just reading through a calendar this morning. I have a prayer calendar on China. Did you know that in 19, I think it was 34, the Yellow River flooded in China and one million people died? And I think it was eight years later, the dam that they built in response to that collapsed and 900,000 people died. I only pause to mention that so that you know I'm aware that when I say the misery unleashed from Adam's sin, I don't mean small things. History is a conveyor belt of corpses because of Adam's sin. And I want to look at this text to see how God is thinking about that and how he is putting Christ in relationship to Adam and that horror that was unleashed by Adam's fall and sin. Because I believe the point of this text is to say that God was not taken off guard by Adam's sin and that Christ and his relationship to Adam is designed by God to magnify his glory in this fallen world. So that's where we're that's where we're going. 
there are five references to Christ. The first one sets up how Paul thinks about the relationship between Adam and Christ. Let's read verses 12 through 14. And you will see this in verse 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all because all sin for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given before Moses, in other words. But sin is not counted where there's no law yet. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Now there is Paul's setup. How shall we think about Adam and Christ? Answer, type and typified. The type pointing. Adam the type, Christ the one of whom he is a type. That's the way Paul's thinking. He wants us to join him in that for a reason. Because if we understand what he does in the remaining verses, we will glorify Christ as like and vastly unlike in his superiority, Adam. What's a type? What's a biblical type? You know what that That word in verse 14 means it means a foreshadowing of something to come. And the foreshadowing is like it. That's how it can be a foreshadowing. And it is very unlike it. That's why it's only a shadow. So it's a foreshadowing and like it and yet unlike it. And it's the unlikeness that Paul is hammering on in these verses. But he's able to hammer on it because he can do it against the backdrop of the type of Adam. And so Adam here is a shadow, a foreshadowing, a type of of Christ. Now, the question I ask at this point is, why did Paul insert At this particular point, the statement, a type of the one who was to come. Let's read verse 14, and you ask that question as I read it. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And then he inserts it, who is a type right at that point, right at the point where he says. Even though they didn't all sin like Adam, they all died like Adam. Right at that point, he says type. Why? Because that's the essence of it. Here's the parallel. Adam sins. Human race in him dies. Why? Because of connection with him. 
We're united. He is our representative head. God has so constituted humanity that we are one. And what happens to our head happens to us. Type. And then you put Christ over that. Christ. My obedience is not like Christ's obedience. Just like their trespass was not like his trespass. My obedience. What's my obedience like? Crummy. Imperfect. Defiled. Falling short every day of my life. So, Christ and those whose obedience is not like his, which was perfect, Live with his life forever. Why? Because we're connected to him. He's the representative head of his new humanity. And faith is the one link between us and that union. So here's the, here's the parallel. Adam, Christ. Adam's sin, Christ's perfect obedience. Fall of all who are united to Adam into the consequence of his sin. Rise of all those who are united with Christ in the consequence of his obedience. Death, eternal life. That's the way it is set up by the Apostle Paul. And just pause and wonder here now. In view of Revelation 13, 8. The book. Named the book of life of the lamb that was slain, slain before Adam fell. Is it hard to see that this type was God's idea? God didn't arrive on the scene in the Garden of Eden and say, what have you done? I totally did not know this was going to happen. I totally had no plan for a son dying for sinners like this. Now you've wrecked it all. And then he begins to think, OK, I've got to figure out how to make my son a typify. This is going to be a type. This is totally not the way the Bible talks. The Bible says the son is seen as slain before the foundation of the world. The Bible says this is a type against which Christ will be greatly glorified. And therefore, this type was in the plan. It's in the plan. Nobody. Not the devil and not Adam takes God off guard. You remember I said. Last week, what God permits, he permits for a reason. God doesn't permit things willy nilly. And what God permits for a reason, he permits for an infinitely wise reason. He's never fumbling the ball. He's never saying oops. He's never playing catch up. He has plans. Everything is folded into them and he's infinitely powerful in his providence over the world. 
And so the way he sets it up in chapter 5 is to say we have in Adam a type of Christ. And it's the best news in all the world that Christ lines up in opposite ways to Adam with superior strength. So let's just look briefly at the three superiorities that are in this text. Number one is the abundance of grace. Number two is the perfection of obedience. And number three is the reign of life. First, verse 15. But the free gift, namely the gift of righteousness, according to verse 17, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. Notice two things. The grace of God is much more powerful than the trespass of Adam. We are not stuck. You may feel like you're stuck. You may feel like my grandfather was this way. My father was this way. I'm this way. My son looks like he's going to be this way. I'm stuck. No. Much more is grace penetrating this fallen world of Adamic corruption and rescuing people, changing people. Cleansing people, justifying people. Second thing to notice is how Christ relates to this grace. I love this phrase. The grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. We know the term grace of God. Love it. Seldom do we think of the phrase the grace of Of the one man, Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God appearing in the world. That's the way Paul talks about it in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Or 2 Timothy 1.9. His own grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus. So this sovereign, triumphant grace rescuing us from our Adamic curse is the grace that came to us in Christ Jesus. Now, go to the second superiority. Not just abundant grace, but perfect obedience. And this is the way the grace is going to work for us. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that's Christ's, the many will be made righteous. So grace appears in Jesus Christ. And what does it do for us? Oh, this is important. Listen carefully. What does the grace of God do for us when it appears in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago as a Jewish rabbi in Israel? One of the things, the thing focused on here, is that it enables him to perfectly keep the law. He never sins. His obedience is flawless from the inception, conception in his mother's womb. Forever, Jesus never sins. And Paul says, that relates to you. He did that for you. You see that in verse 19? 
So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now I got to pause here and stress something. This is the gospel. It's not the only way to talk about the gospel. It's just the way Paul's talking about it here. Our job as believers, among many other jobs, but ultimately is to spread the gospel to everybody who doesn't know the gospel. All the people groups of the world. This is called missions if you cross cultures. To try to get the news Now, what's the news? Now, the reason I'm asking this is because so many people make missions so complicated. Endless discussions of contextualization and way over the top, in my judgment, on some of them. Now, picture this way of thinking about the gospel. The first thing we see here is that it is universally and absolutely relevant for every human being on the planet, no exceptions, with barely any contextualization. There was an Adam, you say to somebody who doesn't know. What is Adam? The very first human being. You are a descendant from him. He sinned. You're dead because of his sins. That is understandable. You may not agree with it, But you can say, as a human, you inherited that. The reason you die is because he sinned. You're a sinner. You're all going to die. Second stage in the gospel presentation. The Son of God is like that Adam. He came to start a new humanity by rescuing people from this old humanity. And he came into the world and he never sinned like your and my forefathers sinned. Never. Perfect obedience. We will one day stand with him before an infinitely holy God to face him because we've all sinned. His righteousness was performed in order that you might be counted as obedient and righteous and perfect through faith in him. So just as you were united to Adam and died because of his sin, you may be united to Christ and live because of his obedience. That word must be told everywhere with barely any contextualization. Got to learn the language. Man, father, origin. It'll blow their worldview out of the water, of course, just like it blows your worldview out of the water. We think, well, we white folks Americans been here 300 years and absorbed Puritanism that we got the worldview figured out. Our our brain set in America just fits perfectly with this book. It's just like a hat. Wrong. This book blows American brains and every other culture. And our job is to say it. Because every human being you meet is in chapter five. Your family is in chapter 5. Your kids are in chapter 5. Your parents, your colleagues at work are in chapter 5. Every human you see on the street is in chapter 5. And the same truth is true about every one of them. And the same gospel applies to every one of them. And it isn't complicated. It's just mind-blowing. So, Superiority number one, abundance of grace. Superiority number two, 
of this great Christ is perfect obedience performed on our behalf. And finally, superiority number three is the reign, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of life, the triumph of life, the sovereignty of life. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness. So there are first two points, grace and righteousness. And now the third, leading to eternal life, all of it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Death flows from Adam. Life flows from Christ. Death flowed because of sin. Life flows because of righteousness. You're not righteous. And so you're dead. Unless there can become a connection, a union with perfect righteousness. This is called justification. When by faith we receive Christ as our substitute, our representative, righteousness, sacrifice, treasure, all that he is, we in him are righteous and will have eternal life. I love the gospel. Let me close by pointing you to verse 17 and asking you if you have received it the way this verse describes it. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more. There's that superiority of Christ again, much more. But now watch this carefully. This is a question for you. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So my question on God's behalf, have you received this grace disobedience, this life. It's free grace. It's free obedience performed by another, offered to you for the having, and free life. Let me close with a warning. In my experience of talking with unbelievers and reading about those who do talk with unbelievers, most It appears that one of the greatest obstacles for people to actually become full-blooded Christians, to move from death to life and unbelief to belief, from non-Christian to Christian, is the thought, I could never do it. I I could never do it. I I, I can't measure up. I, I can't. I've read enough of the Bible to know you're supposed to love your enemies and you're supposed to. Uh, put to death the deeds of the body, like lust, and I can't. And that keeps millions of people from being saved. And here's the, the reason that's a satanic lie. 
the gospel is set up in a way by God to remove that objection. God has come into the world and set up a gospel that says, you don't get yourself ready at all for salvation. Anybody that thinks, I've got to clean up my act. You don't know what I did last night. God does. And it's irrelevant. We are saved by an alien obedience performed by Christ, counted as ours by receiving it. And receiving, that's another word for faith. Receiving is saying, I can't, and I'm wicked, and I'm dirty, and if you touch me, Jesus, you're going to get dirty. And faith says, but if you're coming with grace and with obedience and with life, I want it. I'll receive it. I'll bank on it. I'll rest in it. At that point, you are saved. You are counted righteous. You are a child of God forever. And because you're righteous... In Christ, the wrath of God is removed. And when the wrath of God is removed, guess what happens? He is totally for you. And will move into your life by the Holy Spirit and begin to help you conquer some of that junk you thought you had to get rid of before you believed. I hope you heard that. Because if you get it backwards, you'll never be saved. You'll become a fake legalistic Christian or you'll stay an unbeliever. But if you turn it around and get it right, grace, obedience and life were wrought for you in Jesus. You don't work it. He did it. And then you receive him and that union by faith alone. Faith alone. The great Reformation herald. Faith alone makes you one with Him. His obedience is yours. His grace is yours. His life is yours. And now, His Spirit will be yours. And little by little, we stumble toward heaven together. Let's pray. Oh God, we love the Gospel. We love Christ. We love grace. We love His obedience and our stumbling arrival of obedience. And we love life. And I pray now that as we close, You would grant help to us to believe and that You would make our worldview not wimpy, but strong and deeply rooted, put fiber in the spine of our faith and make us able to stand in the evil day.